This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that you have revealed your word to us, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It illuminates our thinking to truth, that which is absolute, eternal, and unchangeable. It is the light by which we see all other light. It is the ultimate reference point for us. And so, Father, we study your word in order to uh, know it, in order to internalize it and assimilate it, because as our Lord prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is your word that is powerful and your word that you use to mature us, to strengthen us, and to uh, enable us to grow to maturity that we might serve you. So we pray that as we continue our study in Ephesians, that your word would have just a tremendous impact upon our thinking. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we continue our study in Ephesians. And this morning we're going to come to that fourth, some say fifth. We're going to have to decide whether it's four or five lists of gifts, gifted leaders in um, in Ephesians 4.11, that Christ has given to the church for the purpose of equipping the saints, that's all of us, to do the work of the ministry. And so we're looking at Ephesians 4.11, and then we're going to look at a variety of other pastors today as we look at this topic of what is a shepherd. For the word that is translated pastor is the Greek word for shepherd. And so to understand what a, what a shepherd would mean to the readers of the New Testament and writers of the New Testament, we have to understand the background for this because it gets its meaning from the Old Testament. And that's one of the reasons it's important to study the Old Testament is the language, the theology, the thinking, the vocabulary, everything that the apostles had came from their understanding of the Old Testament because that sets the vocabulary. And so we have to interpret this in light of the whole, the whole Scripture. So what we've done is the last couple of weeks we looked at what the Bible teaches about uh, apostles and prophets, and last week we looked at evangelists. And we just want to review a couple of things there because it transitions well to what we're going to begin with today. So we saw that Christ, he himself, gave these, and there are four categories here, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. We saw that apostle was one who was commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ to perform a specific task. The word is also used in a non-technical sense to those who were uh, commissioned by a local church and sent out as missionaries. But we prefer not to use the word uh, in that way today because it can be quite confusing. There are no more apostles after those, in that sense, after the last of the twelve died. We looked at prophets, and we saw that prophets must be understood also in terms of what the role of a prophet was in the Old Testament. And this was a person who was given direct revelation from God, to be then transmitted verbatim to the people. 
And in many cases in the Old Testament, the prophet's role was to serve as sort of a prosecuting attorney for the throne room of God, uh, charging the Israelites with failure to fulfill their end of the covenant and to uh, apply the law and to obey the law. In the New Testament, it's also understood as those who receive direct revelation from God and pass it on in the period when New Testament, the New Testament canon or the books of the New Testament had not all been revealed yet and had not been brought together. And so once that happens by the end of the first century, then the gift of prophet, prophet and prophecy was abolished according to First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, verses uh, 8 and following, 8 down to 13. So we saw last time in this third gift, which is the first of the four that is still operational today, uh, the word is evangelistes, and it comes from the verb evangelizo. And it, the first two letters, E-U, that prefix indicates something that is good, something that is beneficial, something that is positive. And then it is joined with the word angelos, which is the word for a messenger. So it's someone who brings a positive message, a good message. And in the New Testament, it is someone who is a proclaimer of good news. It's one who proclaims uh, the gospel. And so you only have the noun used uh, three times, once in this passage, once in Acts 21.8, where it talks about uh, Philip, who was one of the seven that was set aside in Acts chapter 6. He's not Philip the apostle, he's Philip... Uh, of those seven, and he's identified as the evangelist. So by looking at him, which we did last time uh, in Acts chapter 8, then we come to understand the role of the, uh, of the evangelist. He gives us, a, the Bible gives us a direct picture. Now the verb is an interesting one. I spent a lot of time on this last time. I think it's important to review and for us to remember is that the word indicates proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And I pointed out that often we don't use the word gospel when we're giving people the gospel. What we, we tell them the contents of the gospel, the good news that, that Christ died on the cross for our sins and that by trusting in his substitutionary death on the cross, God freely gives us eternal life. But we don't necessarily use the word gospel. Uh, it is a, an explanation of the gospel that we're born sinners, that we are born spiritually dead, separated from God, and that the only way to receive new life, spiritual life, what the scripture calls regeneration or being born again, is by trusting in Christ as, as Savior, and then we receive new life. So that is proclaiming the good news. It is telling people, explaining to people uh, the gospel. And so Paul uses it this way in Romans 1.15. It's often translated with the word preach, which I explained last time is a really poor and ambiguous term, especially as the word preach has developed in its understanding in uh, English language, in the history of the development of Christianity. It is used today, mostly people understand it as a certain rhetorical or oratorical form. Uh, that you find in a lot of churches. I would say that's really what the Bible refers to as exhortation, and it really isn't what the Bible refers to as preaching. And the reason is, is that uh, many of the times that we have it translated as preach in Acts, it is translating this verb, which means to proclaim the gospel. And in, in that sense, the translators were close because I think that preaching, which comes from a different, really a different word, the word keruso, which we'll review in just a minute, really has as its object that when you are proclaiming something, the something most of the time, nearly all of the time in the New Testament is the gospel, the good news, you're proclaiming Christ, uh, you're proclaiming eternal life. Uh, and that's in contrast to the word teaching, which is uh, what we're going to get to. So the gospel itself, this old English word, uh, comes from a combination of words that mean uh, to tell news or to tell a story. And it was used to translate the Latin words bona 
annunciatio, which is a good announcement, or bonus nuncius, which means to give good news, a good announcement. And so this is uh, translated the Greek evangelion, and even the English word uh, evangelizo and, and proclamation of the was understood initially to come from a word that meant to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim, not the English word preach. But it changes its meaning in the English language uh, over the years. So we see that phrases like preaching the gospel, preaching the word, or preaching Christ. Uh, come from uh, evangelizo, which means to proclaim the good news. In fact, uh, one of um, one of our listeners is a, a, an assistant to Morris Proctor, who's the trainer for uh, for Lagos Bible Software, and he showed me a little trick he did last week, where everywhere you have we have in the New Testament evangelizo, uh, he, he by you, by setting up this visual. Um, uh, this uh, this visual tool here that it has evangelizo underneath the English word and or at the top of the English word and underneath it it says to proclaim the gospel and that way it re- it's a reminder anytime I'm looking at my Bible in Lagos that that's the word that's there because you don't always look at the English and know what it's translating uh, for, uh, in the Greek the other word that's used is this word keruso which has a sense of making a proclamation or making an announcement. And that comes from a noun which refers to a herald, someone who would be sent out to go from village to village to make announcements, public public announcements from the governor of the region or from the king or somebody of that nature. And so that proclamation, the role of that proclaimer was to go through, and he really wasn't there to answer a lot of questions, but just to state the announcement itself. So that's the word from which uh, we most often see the translation preaching. So in Acts 19, or Acts 9.20, we read immediately, and this is referring to Saul of Tarsus, who's now Paul, immediately he proclaimed the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. So that makes it more clear than he preached the Christ because the, the, uh, the object there is a, a different word, and that's important to understand. So we then looked at Philip and his uh, evangelism in Acts 8, that he opened his mouth, and beginning with the Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. That's the ESV translation. Telling him the good news about Jesus translates that verb that I have in the second part, evangelizo. So when you read it in the New King James, he preached Jesus to him. You may have a different image of what he's doing than the more accurate translation in the ESV that he told him the good news about Jesus. So in English, that word preach, you get the idea that he's standing there and he's uh, preaching a sermon uh, to this one individual as opposed to just uh, walking him through Isaiah 53 and explaining, explaining what it meant. In Acts 8.40, we read uh, that Philip was found at Azotus and passing through, he preached. In other words, he gave the gospel in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Uh, one verse that seems to be different is in 1 Timothy 4.2. It has, begins with preach the word. That was the uh, motto of Dallas Theological Seminary. But it is translating the word keruso, uh, preach the word, and it has the idea of convincing, rebuking, exhorting, as it's described in the rest of the verse, and which is parallel to what Paul tells Titus in Titus 1.9, except different there, it's holding fast the faithful word that has been taught, that he may be able, that is, that the elder may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict. So these are all elements that relate to the teaching uh, of God of God's word, and so it probably should be translated in the in the Greek. It's a keruso tan lagan, and that tan lagan is the word logos, 
which means can mean word, can mean message, can mean any number of things. And so it's probably what Paul is saying is proclaim the message. And because he goes on and he defines what that proclamation includes in the remainder of that verse. So our conclusion was that the words evangelizo, to proclaim the good news, and keruso, to make a proclamation or announcement, predominantly focus on proclaiming the good news of the gospel, explaining the gospel to people and how they can have eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ because of his substitutionary death on the cross. He's the one who redeemed us from sin, provided forgiveness, and on whom we should believe that we might have eternal life. John 20, 31 says, These are written, that is, these signs that John described in the Gospel of John, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that brings up a question about teaching. This is where we ended last time. What about, what does the Bible say about teaching? What's the difference between teaching and preaching? Because the Bible makes this distinction various various places. In our culture, in English history culture, we have a distinction between preaching and teaching, but it's an oratorical style or a rhetorical style. In preaching, it is often related to uh, telling stories. It's related to uh, encouraging people to live the Christian life. Uh, it's not related so much to teaching, although there is what is referred to as expositional uh, preaching, which tries to do both at the same time. But what we see when we find these words in the Bible is they're not talking about different styles of oratory. They're talking about they're distinguished by content. So we have this Greek word didasko, which is the verb to teach or to give instruction. In the Gospels, this word's used 55 times, and eight of these refers to others who are teaching. One of them refers to the Father teaching the Son, and one refers to the Holy Spirit teaching. So that gives us an idea of the emphasis there. I don't think there's a single reference of the Father or the Holy Spirit preaching but they teach, they instruct. Keruso is the verb that we see that's often translated to preach, and it has the idea of making a proclamation. And in the Gospels, the object of preaching, Keruso, is often the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the gospel of the kingdom is not the same as the gospel of the church age. A lot of people don't understand that. The gospel of the kingdom, was we covered quite a bit in our study of Matthew, is refers to the message of John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples in the early period of Jesus' ministry before the Jewish leadership rejected him as the Messiah. And it had to do with uh, the announcement of John the Baptist. Initially, when he came on the scene, his message was repent or turn back to God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the gospel, is if you would turn back to God at this point, to the nation Israel, then the kingdom will come. The messianic kingdom promised in the Old Testament will come. So that was the gospel of the kingdom. And so that phraseology is used uh, quite a bit until you get, uh, and then there's a um, rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, for example, in Matthew chapter 12. And after that, you don't see that phrase anymore except one time. One time, and that's in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse when Jesus refers to the fact that in the future in Daniel's 70th week in the tribulation period, that message will be proclaimed again because the, God, the kingdom will be again at hand. And, of course, the Lord returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation and establishes his, his kingdom. So we have passages like Matthew 4.23. Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues 
proclaiming, King, uh, New King James translates it preaching, uh, it's the word keruso, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So it summarizes Jesus' ministry as doing three things, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and then uh, performing various miracles that authenticated that he was who he said he was, and that would include healing all kinds of sickness. Matthew 11.1, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach. So there's Caruso. So he he is, uh, again, doing two things. There's this distinction between the two. Teaching is explaining the scripture to your hearers, what it means and how to apply it. Preaching relates to the content of the gospel of the kingdom. So that is, we're deriving an important distinction here in these words. They're not based on oratorical styles. Uh, the word keruso has the idea of to announce, to make known, to proclaim. That's from the lexicon. Uh, in the Gospels, John and Jesus and the disciples proclaimed the good news of the gospel, of the kingdom. John the Baptist, uh, let me see, John the Baptist, Jesus and his disciples proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world in Dan, during the period of the tribulation in Matthew 24, 14. In the gospel of Mark, John the Baptist proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins in connection with his proclamation of the uh, gospel of the kingdom. The third point is this proclamation of repentance is related to turning to God for the worldwide regathering and reestablishment of the and establishment of the kingdom, excuse me, Deuteronomy 31 through 3. In that passage, God predicts that in the future, after the Jews have been scattered to all the nations of the world, that when they turn back to God, he will then recover them, restore them from where they have been scattered back to the land that God had promised them. And this is what occurs at the end of the uh, tribulation period. It's interesting, some years ago, I heard a rabbi uh, give a sermon on this section of Deuteronomy. And he goes through a few verses dealing with the um, various ways God will uh, punish Israel for their disobedience in the um, 29th chapter. And then he talks about God will regather the people to the land. He completely skips over the condition, which is when you uh, turn back to the Lord. And he applied it to what is currently taking place with Jews returning to Israel. But he just completely skips uh, the condition of turning back to God. A fourth point is that in Mark 13.10, 14.9, and 16.15, the gospel is the content of the verb keruso. Mark 13.10 says the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And Mark 14.9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, and in Mark sixteen fifteen, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. So you see, the when you have this verb, the content of this Caruso proclamation is primarily the gospel. What did I do? Skip a number. Okay, this should be point five. After the demoniac was healed... In Luke 8:39, he is told by uh, Jesus to return to his house and tell what the great things were that God had done for them. And then we're told he went his way and proclaimed. So we see a parallelism between the verb tell and the word proclaim. So what you do when you proclaim the gospel is you tell people, explain to people the gospel. And so what he did was he went his way and proclaimed through the whole city the great things Jesus had done for him, in other words, uh, delivering him from demon possession. And so point six now, the conclusion is that the content of preaching is most often the good news of the gospel. 
the content of teaching is explaining the Word of God so that people who are believers who've responded to the gospel can be spiritually nourished and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to 2 Peter 3.18. What we learn from this is that the concept, uh, of which is related to evangelizo and evangelium, is that the good news of eternal life is offered at no cost. That's the gospel, and that's evangelizo and keruso primarily. It's not a style. And I've often heard this, other pastors have heard this, they, well, you're not a preacher, you're a teacher. Well, technically, every time I explain the gospel, I am keruso or evangelizo, the gospel. And when I am explaining the text of Scripture, that comes under the category of didasco. So that's what we're going to look at now as we start to develop the understanding of this last gifted person of Ephesians 4.11 called, and the text says, uh, some pastors and teachers. Now there looks to those who are just looking at English with little knowledge of Greek grammar or grammatical construction that there's five gifts that there's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and there's a distinction between the two. But what we'll see is that because of the way the construction is, and this isn't related to the Granville-Sharp rule, but it's related to the structure that's there, is that in, um, in the Greek, uh, there's a little word that's usually not translated, but in this passage it's, it's translated with the word some, that you have a some before apostles, you have some before prophets, you have some before evangelists, you have some before pastors, but you don't have some before teachers. The, sum, the last, the fourth sum qualifies pastors and teachers, which shows that they are linked together, connected together in some way. So we're going to have to understand that. There's a lot of confusion on that particular thing. So, first point on this is that in the New Testament, one of the gifted leaders of the local church is described using the noun pastor. It's the Greek word poimen, which literally means shepherd, but metaphorically it is applied to the uh, to a leader in the church, a gifted person given uh, the gifted person given to the church. And it has the idea of pastor. That's how we understand it. And a pastor is basically a shepherd. In First Peter five two, Jesus, uh, Peter is instructing uh, the the people, the the saved Jews that he's addressing in First Peter, and he's addressing the leaders. And he says, "Shepherd the flock." That's how it's translated in English. Uh, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. So the first word is the verb based on this noun for pastor, and so you could translate it pastor the flock of God which is among you, Uh, but it has that idea literally of shepherding, and sometimes it's translated feeding. So that really gets at the heart of the meaning of what a pastor does, but we'll see that there are some other aspects to that. And then it gives the identity of their, uh, of what their, the function of their office as, as episcopoi. And that's a, a bishop or overseer. So you have three words that are used interchangeably, each talking about the same individual. You have pastor, you have elder, emphasizing his spiritual maturity, and you have the word, uh, episcopo, and episcopo, Peo here, episkopos in the Greek, that this is related to um, is related to oversight of the congregation. So they have they emphasize different functions of the same individual. But we're looking at this idea of what does it mean to be a pastor? What does it mean to shepherd? And in Acts twenty seventeen and Acts twenty twenty eight, in this whole chapter of Acts twenty, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. And he stops off to talk to the elders from the churches, and I believe it's 
plural congregations in Ephesus, not just one. And there are several places where in the scripture the singular noun I've pointed out before uh, for church refers to a group of church churches. So it's referred to as the Church of Samaria, uh, which it describes multiple congregations in the region of Samaria. So from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So when the elders come, he addresses them and he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's our word, episkopos. He had made you overseers, and their function, their role, is to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This is poimino, the present active infinitive, meaning to shepherd or to feed. So we see that the function of the elder, the overseer, is related to providing spiritual nourishment uh, to the congregation. So we break down these three offices. Elder refers to the office, and it's referencing the spiritual maturity of that individual. Uh, Bishop or oversight is the function of the office, and pastor is the role and responsibility to feed the sheep through teaching. Now, to get an understanding of this, I want to take us through the Old Testament and look at the idea of shepherding. We have to understand what it means to be a pastor. Now, I ran across this amusing little advertisement for a pastor some years ago, and it was sort of bittersweet because I, I served in a church where this would have been close to the truth. That was my first church. Pastor should always have bad experiences in his first church. He learns a lot. It's horrible to have bad experiences in your last church. So this is the ad. The perfect pastor. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. He condemns sin roundly but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $30 a week to the parish. He is 29 years old and has 40 years' worth of experience. Above all, he is handsome. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his parish. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. People are that way, trust me. The perfect pastor always has time for parish council and all of its committees. He never misses the meeting of any parish organization and is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. The perfect pastor is always in the next parish over. The grass is greener on the other side of the fence. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this notice to six other parishes that are tired of their pastor too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the parish at the top of your list, and if everyone cooperates in one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. <laughs> all right, so what does the Old Testament uh, have to do? First of all, we saw already that the shepherd metaphor um, uh, is the background for the New Testament. And the point two, or let me see, I, I think I just blew past point one. In the New Testament, the gifted leader of the local church is described as a pastor. So the second point is that the Old Testament provides the background and content to understand the significance of this shepherding imagery. The verb that we have in the Old Testament, the Hebrew verb, is ra'ah, which means literally to feed, to graze, to pasture sheep, to tend sheep, uh, to shepherd them. So all of those English words basically have the meaning of making sure that the sheep are nourished and fed, literally. That's his primary job. 
This has been applied metaphorically to leadership. It's that way in the Old Testament, political leaders as well as the leaders spiritually of the uh, of the nation, and it has the idea of leading people uh, to lead people or to rule over people. So it is a, a leadership responsibility as well. The shepherd leads, has authority over, and leads the sheep. We see this literal use in passages like Genesis 29. Right at the end, there's a short phrase, water the sheep and go and feed them. And the word translated feed is ra'ah. In the New King James, it translates it as pasture them, take them out where there's good grass. In Genesis 30, 31, 30, 36, in 37.2, Joseph is described as pasturing or feeding the flock. So that's the literal sense of what it means. And so the metaphorical sense is going to have certain things in common with the literal sense. So that uh, takes us to where we understand how this is applied to God. God is the ultimate pattern for understanding a shepherd. In Genesis 48:15, Jacob blesses Joseph and says, "God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day." That's the verb ra'ah. Then we in Genesis 49:24, and when Jacob is giving his uh, prophetic blessings upon his sons to Joseph he says but his bow uh, but his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hand were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob from there is the shepherd the rock of Israel that's a profound statement so many times through scripture God is referred to as as the rock. Uh, he is Israel's rock, and that is another name or identification of God used also many times uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the Psalms. So God is the one who has led Joseph like a, like a shepherd leads a flock, and um, in the exile, the Israelites cried out, God led me, same idea, and cause me to walk in darkness. That's in Lamentations 3, 2. And so in the future, God is going to provide um, a perfect good shepherds to Israel when they are in the land. So if you're going to understand shepherds, one of the first things you have to do as background is you have to understand sheep. And we're all called sheep, not just not just the congregation, but the pastor is one of the sheep also, and it's not a compliment. Sheep may look nice and cute, and they may not be too antagonistic, but um, it's not a good term. So let's look at some characteristics of sheep. Well, first of all, the believer, like a sheep, is helpless and has no sense of direction. The sheep must be guided by the shepherd. The pastor guides the sheep with the word of God. The sheep is one of the great evidences against evolution because the sheep cannot survive without the shepherd. So how could sheep have evolved hundreds of thousands of years before there were any human beings? The first wolf to evolve would have devoured the sheep and we would have no more. So you can't explain it. That's one of several things like that in reality. So the believer is helpless, has no sense of direction. He must get it from the Word of God. Second point, the believer, like a sheep, can't cleanse himself. So the pastor needs to teach how believers are cleansed using 1 John 1, 9, Confession. A lot of animals will clean themselves. If you have a cat, you know the cats frequently clean themselves. There are other animals who will clean themselves. But a sheep will not clean himself or herself. He will just get filthier and filthier. The shepherd has to clean them. 
Third point of comparison is that the believer, like a sheep, is helpless when injured, has no idea how to take care of his own wounds. And believers are the same way spiritually. They're injured by the various adversities of life. But the Lord provides solutions through his word, and God's word is sufficient for everything. God gave us the tools we need to handle any difficulty, problem, heartache in life. And for uh, since the creation of the world until, to, until about 200 years ago, people looked to pastors to help them deal with personal issues such as anger or resentment or bitterness or depression or discouragement, all of the things that are now considered to be the domain of the psychologist or psychiatrist. And so many pastors, I'd almost call them pseudo-pastors, bought into this lie, and back in the late 60s and early 70s, Dallas Seminary would uh, send out these surveys. What is it that you didn't get enough of when you were in seminary, and what could we do better in our curriculum? And the vast majority said, I wish I'd learned more about counseling. That just showed they didn't learn much about theology either, because counseling is advice from the Scripture, and you have to have a good biblical theology and a good biblical anthropology and a good biblical homardiology, that's the study of sin, in order to uh, guide and direct people, and that 98% of that should come from the pulpit. Counseling is done through teaching the Word of God, and then people can apply it to, the, to their lives. So this is very important to understand this, and Psalm 23.1 states, The Lord, my shepherd, he is the one who ultimately is our shepherd, and he is sufficient. The fourth point of comparison is that the believer, like a sheep, cannot protect himself spiritually, so the shepherd must teach how the Lord, the great shepherd of the sheep, protects the believer as our shield, fortress, rock, and deliverer. Sheep just, they're too slow to get away from their attackers. They're not able to camouflage themselves. If you stick a, a sheep out in the desert, it's very obvious where the sheep is. He stands out. So uh, he can't protect himself. He has no natural protection uh, except the shepherd. Fifth, the believer, like the sheep, cannot find food or water on his own. A sheep can be standing two feet from water and die of thirst. There are a lot of Christians who go through a carnal death standing two feet from their Bible, but they have no idea how to use it or anything about it because their pastor has not taught them. So... Uh, we must learn how God is our shield, fortress, rock, and protector, and how to find food and water. And the end of John chapter 21, which we'll look at in, the, in this study, Jesus, in three different ways of stating this, tells Peter that if you love me, you will feed my sheep. He doesn't say, if you love me, you will become the worship leader and lead people in meaningless choruses. Unfortunately, that's how it's understood today. It is the role of the pastor to feed the sheep. Not only that, but we have passages like Colossians chapter 3, which says we are to uh, teach and admonish each other through the hymns that we sing. So you have to have some really good content in your hymns if you're going to be taught and to admonish. Sixth, the believer like a sheep is easily frightened or panicked. So the shepherd must calm the sheep with songs in the night. So our shepherd calms us with the truth of God's word. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is a great promise related to be anxious for nothing and turning to the Lord in prayer. Seventh point, the believer, like a sheep, does not own his own production. That's his wool. He produces wool, and he is shorn of that wool, but the wool belongs to the shepherd, not the sheep. The, the production in our life is produced by God the Holy Spirit, and God is the one who gets the glory, not, not us. And then a final eighth point is the believer, like sheep, can become ill, and lose the will to recover. 
The further a believer goes into extended carnality or sin, he can enter into a spiritual lethargy that loses all motivation towards spiritual recovery and growth. But it's only the work of the shepherd through the teaching of God's word that the sheep is enabled to recover. So those are just eight points of similarity why the sheep needs the shepherd. So we'll close out briefly by looking at some things in Psalm 23 where we learn of the responsibilities of the shepherd, and this is talking about God as our great shepherd and what he provides for us. And we read through the chapter earlier, so I'm not going to repeat that, but just to look at some of the things that we learn here. First of all, the shepherd makes the sheep lie down. It's interesting when you look at these verbs, I will go back to this, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Notice he doesn't say, with your permission, I'd like to suggest that maybe you need to lie down in this particular pasture. God makes them lie down in green pastures, that is, where there is spiritually nourishing food. He leads me. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. All of these are very active verbs. God is the one who does that. So he makes the sheep lie down, uh, which is he a verb meaning to lie down or to rest, to be in a secure and safe place. God provides us with that security and safety. Isaiah 14:30, the firstborn of the poor will feed and the needy will lie down in safety. I will kill your roots with famine, and it will slay your remnant. So this is a judgment on Israel. But in there, he talks about how the shepherd, the sheep, will lie down in safety. In Ezekiel 34, 15, God says, I will feed my flock and will make them lie down. So lying down in green pastures is a picture of safety, a picture of security, a picture of rest and relaxation. He leads us. And the word here means to lead or to guide. And he leads us and guides us to uh, the still waters. And this is a place of refreshment. And, and God leads us to places where we are refreshed and we are, are nourished. And as a result, he restores our soul. There are times when we go through things in life that are very distressing and discouraging and we're very upset by a lot of things, but it is God who restores our soul. God is the one who enables us to uh, recover, to heal from those. Maybe it's sin in our life. Maybe it is just events and circumstances that have disrupted us, but God is the one who restores our soul. So that's part of the responsibility of a pastor. He restores the soul through the teaching of God's word. A fourth thing we learn looking at the psalm is that God guides us beside the still water for refreshment and in paths of righteousness through the word of God. He makes our paths straight. That's part of the application of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. It doesn't say you have to search for the way in which he is directing you. He will automatically do that. So he guides and leads us. Psalm 31.3 says, uh, For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake you will lead me and guide me. It is his character that's at stake in some some sense. He guides us in these paths of righteousness. Uh, the word here for uh, uh, a path is a track, a course, uh, a route. Uh, if you're in Israel sometime and you drive along, you'll see on the hillside, you'll see these horizontal, what look like horizontal lines, and they are the paths of the animals that are going around the hillside, and that's the same word that is used uh, that is used there. It can uh, refer to uh, various other things as well. Psalm seventeen five says, "My steps have held fast to your paths." So Scripture defines that through the commands of Scripture: uh, how, where we should walk, where we should not walk. 
then he protects us with the rod of correction, and it's also a rod of protection. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Why? Because one is one that he will uh, discipline or hit the sheep with to get them away from something that's dangerous, and the other is that he guides and directs them in the direction they should, should go. Micah 7.14 says, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland. In the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. So we are shepherded by that which corrects and protects us. So this brings us to uh, the way in which God does that, and that's in with Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that's why pastors are to teach the Word of God, because as people learn that, then they will be uh, provided for. My battery died just as I'm closing, so that well-timed. So with that, we'll come back next time to finish up our study of the shepherd in the Old Testament as a way of introducing what we understand to be the role and function of a shepherd or a pastor in the New Testament with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things uh, this morning, to reflect upon how you provide for us, you as our uh, great shepherd. You are the one who sustains us, that you are our shepherd and we lack nothing. Father, we pray, too, that we might understand what the role of a pastor is, a shepherd who leads and guides, directs, and, and does this through the Word of God. Father, we pray that any who are here who are not saved or any who are listening who are not saved or uncertain of their salvation, that they would understand this great news, this gospel, that Christ died for our sins and that he has paid the sin penalty, taken it upon himself, so that by, uh, by trusting in him, we receive that free gift of eternal life that is ours through Christ our Lord. Father, we pray that you might make this clear to all who need to understand it. And then for the others that we need to grow. We need to grow, as Peter says, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this comes from study, this comes from uh, good Bible teaching, and it comes from the instruction, and it comes from internalizing your word into our lives. And Father, we pray that you would continue to strengthen us by the Holy Spirit in our inner man, that we may grow to spiritual maturity. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.